0: Sixty years ago, on April 10th of 1963, the USS Thresher, a nuclear submarine, sent out to test in about 8,000 feet of water with 129 men on board. The sub never did come back, and ended up sinking and killing all 129 men on board. The the reason that was pinpointed was a breakdown in the cooling system of the salt water, of the propulsion system, and the weeks leading up to this, the submarine had under- undergone some pretty extensive uh, upkeep and maintenance. Yet they found that these pipes that were responsible for getting the salt water, to the propulsion system that only 5% of them had been inspected. And of that 5% that had been inspected, the report showed that one out of every seven fittings showed uh, problems that were not satisfactory, and yet the ship went out anyway. It's an unfortunate part of American history, but there's a lesson to be learned about the dangers of only examining what we want to examine. Of what can happen when we choose to neglect the whole story. When we do not want to look at the whole truth, and we only examine what we want to examine. And a lot of times, in this case, one out of seven fittings don't look too good, And so the conclusion being, let's not look too much further. And let's just send this ship out to sea and hope that it works. The men only inspected what they wanted to inspect and refused to look at the rest. Today there are many who are sailing the waters of eternity with a ship that's going to sink. And these people have not examined their lives properly. They are very loose with their own souls. They have not carefully studied the scriptures to be sure what it takes to possess eternal life. These folks, they may have gone far enough to appear safe. But on the day of testing, a different story will be told. One of the worst parts of this Horrendous fact that multitudes will end up in hell. One of the worst parts of it is that multitudes of them would not have ended up there if they would have just examined the truth a little further. If they would have been willing to be honest with themselves and honest with God and honest about what the scriptures teach on the subject of true salvation. This morning I asked the question, what does the word saved mean to you? When you think about saved, what does that mean to you? Is it a prayer that somebody says? Someone asks you, are you saved? And you say yes. What do you mean by that? What do you point to? Is it a, does it mean that you, say to, you said a prayer at some point in your life and ask God to forgive you? Uh, is it a commitment to start going to church Uh, Is it believing in God? Like, what do you mean? What, What does it even mean to be saved? Where does the term come from? Biblically, there are a handful of places. One of those sections of scriptures in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, we see the word saved used twice. Let's look at it together. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. Saved from what? The answer, in its simplest form, is from an eternal damnation in hell. That's what we're saved from. We are saved from eternal separation of God in the place the Bible calls hell that's what we're saved from. How can you know that you're saved? Nothing matters more than that question. There's not any question you will ever answer in your entire life that's more important than how do you know if you're saved. It's it's more important than who you marry. It's more important than where you spend your life. It's more important than what career you have. It's more important than how much money you have in your bank account when you retire. I mean, there's nothing that can compare to the question of, how can you know that you're saved? This morning, I want us to look at three facts about salvation that we cannot get wrong. We can't get these things wrong. because Nothing's more important than the correct answer of how do you know that you're saved. Now, if you're a note taker, as I've already told you, I have almost 20 passages that I'm going to go through in the course of the next 40 minutes. Let that sink in. I'm going to have to go through them quick. We're going to see that this is all over the Word of God. And so my recommendation is that you pay close attention this morning. Know that my notes are in our church app, and you can simply copy and save them to any place you want to save them. Email them to yourself. Save them to your phone. Save them to your computer, whatever. Every passage that we're going to read is found there. And so with that said, we're going to move quickly. Let's start with Fact number one this morning about salvation, and that is there are those who look saved but are still going to hell. It's an important fact we've got to square with. There are those who look like they're saved, but they're still going to hell. Matthew 7, 21, verses 20 through 23 say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, 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 Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day is going to make it into heaven. Now, this is a really important verse because who calls Jesus Lord? Muslims? Atheists, Buddhists, Hindus, no. Jews, no. There's only one group of people on the planet who call Jesus Lord, and that are those who believe they are Christians. So Jesus says specifically with that group of people who call Him Lord that many will come in the end thinking they're saved, and find out they're not. That's a big deal. Now, another important word is the word many. He says many will come. It's not a few. Many. That same word, many, the exact word, can be translated most as in a majority. That's that's just a powerful thought. Whether it is most or many, the fact is, it's not a few. There's not just a few people who think they're going to heaven that aren't. Many who think they're going to heaven that aren't. Now, here's what. some of this stuff's hard to hear this morning. What I want you to do is just settle with the fact that this is what the Word of God says. right? You, you, and, and you're going to have to grapple with some of these things. Spend some time thinking and meditating on these. But this is, this is a clear, undeniable statement. Many who think they're saved aren't going to heaven. Now, who are these folks that think they're going to heaven that aren't. Jesus does not leave us to wonder. He doesn't just leave it hanging out there for us to cross our fingers and hope we're one of the ones that make it. He tells us who the people are who think they're going to heaven, but are not. He says, you who work lawlessness. Those who still continue in their sins. Those who profess to be Christians, but continue in their sin. Look what 1 John verses 1 through 6 say about this. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So here we see some important clarification on the Romans chapter 10 passage. It says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you're going to be saved. Well, we see that it's possible to say one thing and walk another way. And what God ultimately judges us according to is not what we say, but if we have a life that demonstrates that what we say is true. And so you can say one thing and walk differently. You can claim to be a Christian, but still live in your sin. But if you do, according to the Word of God, You're just a liar. And as we're going to see later, all liars have their part in the lake of fire. So does this mean that we're perfect? Does this mean that as a Christian, you never sin? No, that's not what it means. Jesus said, you who work lawlessness, it's what you do. It's how you live your life. It's how you walk. I mean, you work it. I don't think there's anywhere in all of Scripture that is more clear in helping understand this concept of working sin, practicing sin, than 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Look what the Bible says here. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Pay attention to how often the word practice is used. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Let's stop there at verse 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one. Not you. Not your kids. Not your loved ones not your mom, not your dad, not your husband, not your wife, no one. There are no exceptions. If you keep on sinning, you have neither seen him or known him. Now, let's read on before I comment anymore. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, before I comment on the text, I I want to say something important about how we interpret the Bible. There are certain sections of the Bible that are really easy to understand certain sections that are very clear. There are other sections that maybe it's a parable, could be an analogy, but there are other portions of the Bible that are not as super clear. What we do with Scripture is we take what is super clear and we use it to help shine light on the sections that are not as clear. Some will point to, example, for example, Romans, excuse me, John chapter 10, where we have the good shepherd who loses none of his sheep. It's a great passage, beautiful passage. But they'll point to that as some reference to how their heathen children, living in sin, are still going to go to heaven, because when they were three, they were told to repeat a prayer. We dunked him in water when they were five, and now they live like heathens, but by golly, the shepherd won't lose any of his sheep. this very clear passage in 1 John chapter 3 shines some much more specific light on what true salvation looks like. And while it does not change, John chapter 10 and the the parable of the good shepherd it shines light on what it could or could not mean. And so here we have one of the most clearest passages in all of Scripture About true salvation, here's what it says. You cannot. It's not possible. Cannot means impossible. You cannot continue on your sin and be saved. It's just not possible. It's interesting that right in the middle of it, what it says is, let no one deceive you. He starts off and says it. No one can continue practicing sin as a Christian. And then he says, let no one deceive you. And then he repeats it. It's not possible for you to continue in your sin as a Christian. This is so clear. It's undeniable and unmistakable. He says this is how it's actually evident. Like you can, in fact, know. It's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The children of God are those who follow God and live for him. The children of the devil are those who do not follow God and who do not live for him. It's so simple. This is not a parable. This is not an analogy. This is not confusing. It wouldn't matter if it was one sentence because one sentence in the Word of God is sufficient, but this is an entire paragraph of repeated sentences that say the same thing so frequently and so clearly it's not possible to misunderstand what it's telling us. I want to hone in on the word practice, because it's used over and over and over again in this passage. For me, it's probably the most important word in the passage. It doesn't say that we never sin. It says we cannot continue sinning. It says that we cannot practice sin. So, before I was a Christian, I practiced sin. It's what I did. I was good at it. When you practice something, you're actually trying to get better at it. You do it more and more. And it's also not really accurate to say that as a non-Christian, I never did anything that was good or that the Bible would 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 say is a good deed. There are certain things that I did good even as a sinner. One example, just one example, is in my own life, my whole life, I always just kind of pulled for the underdog. I was one of the kids that typically got picked first when you line up in class, right, and it's time to pick your basketball teams, and I, and, and I always did not like it when the, when the same few kids got picked last. I hated that, and so I would try to be the captain to pick kids, and I would typically pick kids that wouldn't get a go first. Now, does that mean I was this great God-fearing Christian? No, I was not, but there were some times that I you know, did some things that you could say, well, that was a kind of a righteous act there. But make no mistake about it, I didn't practice it. Absolutely not. I practiced sin, and I was good at it. Lying and everything, lying, stealing, thieving, and all sorts of other words that I really don't even want to name this morning. I practiced it. Every day I practiced sin. When I truly got saved, <laughs> that flip flop And I began practicing righteousness. It's not that I never sinned, but I no longer practiced it as a way of life. Instead, I began practicing how to live for God. Now, in this same passage that we're in, it tells us that we cannot go on practicing sin, and it gives us the the great because. In the version that I read, it translates it for but it's the same thing as because. The reason we cannot go on sinning, according to the Word of God, is because God's seed remains in us. And that seed is the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit lives inside of the Christian and then convicts us of sin so that we cannot continue practicing sin. It's one of the functions of the Holy Spirit. John sixteen eight, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit. When He comes, the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. So one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. And you'll find that when the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you can't enjoy sin anymore. It doesn't mean you will never ever sin. What it means is when you do, It'll be disgusting. You'll hate it. It's no longer enjoyable. What once used to be fun, it's not fun anymore. All of a sudden, when you partake in that particular sin, you might as well, it feels like poison in the mouth. It feels like whatever you're trying to eat that you thought would be great turns to gravel and sand in the mouth. And it doesn't have the same impact it once used to have. And when you're done, you're like, man, why did I do that? Why well, I don't like that anymore. I, don't, I hate it when I do that. I don't like it when I sin. And someone who truly has the Holy Spirit in them, There ain't any other way. That's the way it works. It's this supernatural thing that happens when we're born again, and God puts his nature inside of us. All of a sudden, it transforms us, and therefore, we cannot continue in our sin. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not work on our part. God does the the implanting of the Holy Ghost, but there's still this work on our part. where We've got to yield to the Holy Spirit. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so we have these actions or commands to us as Christians, such as Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9-11. through Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, Revelation 21 and verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the fatherless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, murderers and sexually immoral right next to each other, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so here comes the command in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Do you live up to the test? Being deceived about this is the worst thing that you could ever be deceived about. Being deceived about whether or not you you live up to the test, whether or not you are saved, whether or not you're going to make it, whether or not the ship of your eternal soul is going to sail when when, when you leave this life to the next, or you're going to sink. There is nothing more important than answering that question. Examine yourselves. Do you still enjoy sin? Do you still live in it? Do you think that simply because you said some prayer or you say that you believe in your heart, that that means you're saved? All too often, we would rather hold on to false hope than to repent and follow God. And that word repent, it's the one word that really defines all of this. Repentance. Believing is not enough. Look what James 2 verses 19 through 20 say. So you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? So in verse 14 of that same chapter, it asks the question, can this kind of faith save you? It's a rhetorical, no, it can't. Well, what kind of faith? The type of faith that the demons have. Where you do believe in the correct God, you believe that the God of the Bible is truly God, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but it does nothing to impact the way you live. That kind of faith is useless, is what it says. It says it's dead. And a dead faith never saved anybody and never will save anybody. You must have a living faith. And a living faith is a faith that impacts the way in which you live. Repentance. The word repentance means to have such a change of mind that it changes the way that you live. It's not just a decision to do something different. Like, real repentance means I've changed my mind about something. I now agree with God, that what God says is right, what God says is wrong, is wrong, what God says is right, is right. Like, I believe what God says, and therefore it impacts the way that I live. And to demonstrate this type of belief, if you've been here many years, you've heard me use this analogy four or five times. It helps give a picture of what true repentance is. Normally around three or four years old, most boys at some time three to five years old come in contact with their first bond fire. One of the jobs of dad is to tell his son, be careful around the fire. It's hot. If you touch it, you'll get hurt. Most three to four or five-year-old boys will wait until dad is not looking and then touch it themselves. Some of you have your own stories of this happening in your own life. Or you know of someone else to whom it's happened. That boy, before he's burned himself, has a consciousness that this is supposed to be hot. He might even tell his friends like he knows something. Don't touch that. Don't touch it. It's hot. Just repeating and regurgitating what his father said. Deep inside, there's still some doubt. He's not real sure exactly how hot that fire is. And so he does something silly, finds a reason to get close enough to it, and either trips, falls in, or does something silly and actually touches something and ends up burned. From that moment on, the rest of that boy's life, he will never do that again. Because something changes inside of his mind and inside of his heart. Now he doesn't just think it might be hot. He knows. And so he's repented in his mind. He's changed what he believes about the certain topic, and it forces him to live a different way. When the Bible talks about a faith and a belief in Jesus, that's the type of faith and belief that it's talking about. It's not just some mental assent like the demons have, that he must be God. It's not just some willingness to say, well, I mean, if he walked on water, he must be God. Well, if he rose from the dead, he must be God. It is not some mental passive assent to truth. It is an inner belief that is so real and so founded, it is not possible to not act upon it. That's the type of faith the Bible talks about, and it brings about repentance, and it's not possible to be saved without repentance. Look what Jesus said in Luke thirteen three, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's mind-blowing to me the number of people who think you can be saved without repenting. Jesus said you can't. It's weird, like they say, well, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe I have to repent then you believe in a fake Jesus. You believe in a Jesus that you've created in your own mind who is nothing more than a fantasy. Because the Jesus who died and shed his blood so that you could be forgiven, the actual Jesus who was crucified, buried in a borrowed tomb, and rose from the dead on the third day, that Jesus, he said... You must repent or you're going to perish. And so if you believe him, you've got to believe what he says. No, you cannot be saved without repentance in your life. You have to turn away from sin and follow the Lord. The second fact I want us to discover this morning, we have to look at, we cannot miss it, is that to be a new creation, it means new life. Always, 2 Corinthians five seventeen says: Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, there's something supernatural that happens when we are truly saved. We become a new creation, and it says the old has passed. That's past tense, folks. It doesn't say the old is passing doesn't say stick it in there and eventually the new will come. It says it's done. The old has passed. The new has come. It is a final fact for those who are truly new creations. The old passes away and the new has come. So when we are truly saved, something altogether new happens in us. We are not the same we once used to be. To be born again is to have something altogether new. We have new life. And this new life, it starts in the heart. It's about a transformation of who I am, not a transformation of what I do. Who I am changes so much that what I do follows, but it's a transformation of the heart. We now practice new practices. We have a hunger to know God. When you are truly made new, you will have a hunger to know God. You'll want to know Him. You'll want to know His voice. You'll want to know His word. You'll have a hunger to know His word. You'll have a desire to live godly. You will have a desire to repent. You will have a willingness to forgive. A willingness to show mercy. You will have a love for the body of Christ. Jesus said one of the ways that you, people will know you're my disciples, is your love for one another. You will have a desire to be used in God's kingdom. You will have a desire to please God. You will have all of these, and it really creates your purpose for living. And this is only a tiny fraction of the list of why it is so awesome to truly be born again. It changes everything about a person. And these are character traits, right? These aren't things that we do. These aren't duties that we check off. It's a character trait in our heart to hunger for God. It's a character trait to hunger to know God's word. It's a character trait to desire repentance. And this is what true salvation is. It is life change. It is something that is altogether new. Now we see... What true salvation is, let's answer the question, finally, of how does one become saved? The third fact that we cannot miss concerning salvation. Number three, to be saved, you must be born again. In John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Nicodemus. Jesus answers Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3 and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So to be saved, you must be born again. Listen, I am a huge fan of church. I'm hoping that your willingness to show up to church this morning, that God is doing something in your life right now and blessing you for coming. I, ch- church is, is part of something we should do. I'm a huge fan of singing songs and worship. I'm a huge fan of missions and all sorts of stuff and things we do. But Jesus didn't say you had to do any of those things to be saved. He said you must be born again. That's, that's what matters this morning. Not, not do you go to church. Not are you a member of the well or some other church. Not have you been baptized. Not did you repeat a prayer. Not can you quote scripture. Not have you given to missions? Not have you served here or there. Not, none of that. The question is have you been born again? That's the all important question. Because Jesus said you must. Be born again. That's a, that's a phrase to me that is most interesting because on one hand it's like, you must do this, but then what you must do, you can't do. God's the only one that can do it. So there is a must. There's something you must do. You must be born again, but you can't make yourself be born again. Only God can do that. And we see, this, we see then that this, this thing that I'm going to call true salvation... Biblical salvation, it is this coming together of of my will, engaging with the heart of God and being willing to let God do what only God can do. There's got to be this acknowledgement, I can't make myself be born again. I can't do it. It's a work of the Spirit that only God can do. But I recognize, according to Jesus, it must happen in my life or I can't be saved. The word see in that verse is an interesting word. It says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That word see, it means to experience or understand a thing. It means to perceive or detect something as if you could see it. It can literally mean to spy out to come to know something, to perceive the meaning or importance of a thing, to be aware of or recognize. Jesus said, until you're born again, you cannot perceive the kingdom of God. You cannot be aware of it. You cannot recognize it, even when you are in the midst of it. It's not just that we inherit the kingdom of God by being born again, but when we are born again, our spirits are awakened and we begin to perceive the kingdom of God. This is one of the reasons that in a room like this size, you'll have a lot of people that are truly born again and a handful who are not. And when the Spirit of God is moving, those who are truly born again, there's kind of this awareness of what's going on. There's, it's like as if we see the kingdom of God at work. And then those who are blinded and who are deaf to the things of God, who have not been born again, it's sort of like, ah, oh, this is weird. What's happening in this place? And there's even a desire to get away from it all, to exit Get back into the the realm where there was no consciousness whatsoever of these things. To really see it, you must be born again. There are three components of salvation concerning your will that I want to address this morning. Because God's the only one that can cause you to be born again. What is your role? The answer is faith, right? The Bible says we are saved by grace through faith. Now, there are three aspects of faith that involve your will. Because If you want to know, like, so what can I do then, Joplin? Well, if, if I can't save myself, if I can't make myself be born again, what do I do? There are three acts of your will that you need to understand are all part of faith. First of all, faith. The type of faith that leads to prayer. You can pray. Confess your sins. In 1 John 1, 9, it tells us if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So you need to have a faith that is sincere enough, a belief that is deep enough that it drives you to your knees, to a place that you cry out to God and you acknowledge to God, God, you are the one who I have sinned against. You are the one of whom I have been in anarchy to your laws. I have refused to follow your laws. And God, you alone are he who needs to hear my apology. I have sinned against you, and I confess my sins to you, God. Please, Lord, forgive me. You need a faith in Christ that is sincere and real enough that you'll be willing to go talk to God about it, that you'll get on your knees or your face before God, and you'll be honest with God about who you are, about who he is, and about what that means. Number two, real faith is a faith that leads to repentance. I've already dealt with this, so I'm not going to hammer it much. But you must be willing and make a conscious choice, I'm going to turn from my sins. And number three, you need a belief that leads to obedience. A faith that says, I am going to obey God because God has said. These are all acts of the will prayer, repentance, obedience. You will not be saved because you pray. You're not, you will not be saved because you repent. You will not be saved because you obey. Salvation comes through the supernatural being born again of the Holy Spirit, but that happens when we are willing to turn to God, believe God, and repent of our sins, cry out to Him and ask Him to save us and be willing to get up from our knees and live a life to obey Him. And you can rest assured that no matter where you are in life, no matter how wrong that you've got it, no matter how far you've got it from to your sin, that if God loved you enough, and He did, to send His Son to die for you, that if the blood of God's only Son was shed on Calvary's cross for your sins, you can rest assured that when you do this, God is willing to meet you right there where you are on your knees and put His Spirit into your heart and transform your life. Romans 10.10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We see that ultimately this belief is an act of the heart. And Jesus teaches us about the connection between the heart and the mouth when he says this in Luke 6.45, that out of the abundance of the heart, a man's mouth speaks. So we see there's this connection. Yes, it is possible to say one thing just for the sake of saying it, but not really believe it in the heart. But it is not possible to truly believe something in the heart and not say it. And this is why with the heart we believe. And it is a belief that is so real, so intense, that it drives us to our knees in confession. The promise of 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to close with a mention of Hebrews chapter 8. In fact, you guys don't have this back there, and I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to pull it up. It's uh, Hebrews chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 10 here in a moment. Uh, I'll probably just do verse 10. 10 and 11. Hebrews 8, 10 and 11. So, one of the things that's difficult to understand about true salvation, if you're a sinner, Maybe you're here, and you just kind of know it, of everything you've heard this morning. You fall into the category of those who call Him Lord, but don't follow Him, and you know it. But based upon everything you saw, you're like, I'm going to be one of those who at the end is said of me, I never knew you, (laughs) depart from me. And you're trying to figure out, well, how do I get serious, right? How do I serve the Lord? How do I... How do I not want to sin? It's such a supernatural thing that happens at salvation. It's just almost impossible to explain very well. It is truly to be more experienced than explained. But I, 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 I want to try to explain it this way. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 was read earlier in in all of your hearing this morning when we took communion. In Hebrews chapter 10, we were told that the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse us of our sins. That instead it pointed forward to something else. Here's one of the things about the Old Testament that pointed forward to the need for Jesus. When you go look at the commandments, it's a bunch of thou shalt not. Don't do this. Do that. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do that. And what people found out was, you can't do it. In the old, it was, you shall. You shall not. You shall do this. You shall not. You shall do this. Look at the difference in the new covenant, Hebrews chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The Old Testament was you shall, you shall not, you shall do this, you shall not. And what we found out was we can't. The New Testament, God says, I'm the one that will do it. And I'm the one that will put my spirit inside of you. And I will write my laws on your heart. And I will put my laws in your mind. God's the one who does the work. And when God does that work, it changes us. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we feel. It changes the way that we live. So this morning, the question is, has this happened in your life? Have you been born again? Is the Holy Spirit living in you? You'll find this morning that if you are a Christian, you'll, much of what I said will resonate. And if you're a Christian who's been toying around with sin, right? you're not living in it, you're not practicing it as a way of life, but you're toying around with it, here's what you're going to find. You hate it. It's disgusting to you. And if anything, for, for for those of us that are truly born again this morning that we should see out of this message is the danger of toying around with sin. And there should be this sincere desire to get away from it, to, to get it out of our lives, to get the things out of our lives that tempt us to sin. But if you're here this morning and you're like, no. No, no, I'm not saved and I know it. All of these things that The Bible clearly says are the evidences. This is evident who the sons of God are and who the children of the devil are. All of these evidences are, are, are a shining mirror in my face that I have not repented of my sins. I am not obeying God. I don't actually have a love for him. This morning I plead with you, come to Jesus. And be saved. I plead with you with all of your heart. Do whatever it takes. To muster up as much faith as you can. To kneel before God. And get honest about with God. About who you are and who he is. To make a conscious decision. To repent of your sins. And turn from those wicked ways. And to make a conscious decision. That you're going to live your life for him. And you're going to obey him. As our worship team comes. The final thing I want to say this morning. About salvation is this. Nobody can do it for you but you. It's you and God. Your husband can't save you. Your wife can't save you. I as your pastor, I cannot save you. Your children can't save you. Your parents can't save you. Salvation is an individual event that happens with each person. You alone must choose to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody gets to make that choice for you. And God, even himself, will not force you to be saved. God is a gentleman. God wants us to come willingly. God wants us to turn to him because we believe that he is good and we know that he is God. And we recognize our need for him and we turn to him in faith. He will not force you to do it. you're here this morning and you're lost you have the choice you can leave on the same path to a devil's hell that you walked in this morning on you can leave with your eternity still being settled as forever damnation and hell that's your choice or you can leave safe You can leave this morning completely and totally and radically changed by the blood of Jesus and the infilling of the Holy Spirit in your life.